Lord, when we do pause to think about those who have gone before us and those who have even built the place that we now worship, we are incredibly humbled to realize uh, not only what we have been given, but also what we have been invited into. And we ask that you would make us strong and able, courageous and obedient to do this good work that we've been given. We give you thanks for Jim and the many people of Sunbeam for the way that they have led and served this community for over a hundred years in caring for the most vulnerable among us. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to use them to bring hope, to provide opportunity for people to experience transformation and new life. And we pray for our little church as we learn what it means to be people of this place, that you would shape us, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that we may too learn how to offer hope and live the way of Jesus in our neighborhood. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, if you would. And if you don't have a Bible, I have friends who have some Bibles, and they'd be glad to lend you one. I'm going to be reading out the New Living Translation, and so all you got to do is raise your hand, and somebody will bring you a Bible right over here. If you don't own a Bible or you don't own this translation, you can just keep it for yourself. If you uh, just need to borrow it, you can leave it on your seat. Somebody will pick it up after the service. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7, so I'd invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this evening. So, hear the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire, for, for a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is usually a Christmas text. It's not normally a text that you would find being read in ordinary time because it is anything but ordinary. I don't know if you know this, but our greatest spiritual season is upon us. It is the season of consumerismus. This is the highlight and the peak of our religiosity here in the West. We are now in the advent of big shopping season. Now, some people think that I'm a little bit, 
I'm a little bit Grinch-like because I, I push back on this part of the whole season. But honestly, I think there's something that's happening internally, maybe, maybe even emotionally and spiritually that's going on inside of me. There's an honest groan that takes place in me about this whole kind of advent of shopping season because I've got this angst and, and, and I've got this longing because I, it, it all points to a desire that I have and maybe a desire that we all have and that is maybe we all want a real encounter with God. Nothing that's fake or sentimental, no, nothing that's trite or trumped up, Nothing that's about the by and by or some, just some sort of heavenly, uh, heavenly reward. I'm really interested in God showing up in creation. The God that Scripture says shows up. I'm interested in that God. I'm, I'm interested in the God that has in real time disrupted pharaohs and emperors and Caesars. I'm interested in the God that Isaiah saw and I'm interested, I'm interested in the God that the, that the people of that place bore witness to as, as, they, as they suffered enormously under a chaotic political system. I want Isaiah's vision. Because I think Isaiah's vision is real. It's about a place. It's about a group of people. And it's about a politic. Place, people, politics. This is what is involved in a parish. Now, when we say that we want to recapture the old word parish, it's because here at the H Street Church, we are committed to this place, this very place, this spot of land, this dirt, this building, this area that we find ourselves. We have what's called a land theology, and in this we have hope that with, it, with Creator God, that, that this Creator God is working to redeem and restore all of creation. We do not think that land or, or dirt or place is theologically neutral. When chaos and violence break out in our world, uh, and, and when it breaks out in Isaiah's story, he says, and we get to say together, hey, hey, you know what? God is about remaking the world, and, and God invites us into that task. So we want to invest here. Our desire is to take care of this land. We care about and seek to live and carry ourselves well in this space so that we might do good on behalf of our neighbors. Because parish is not just about a place. It's about the people that live in that place. Our neighbors, who they are, what they do, how they live, what their needs are. All of that stuff is important to us. Our neighbors live here. They, their kids go to school here. Uh, they drive on roads here. They have to buy or grow their food here. Uh, and, and as their city, as it is ours, we care about what happens here, so, so we love it, and we work on this land together for the sake of our neighbors. Now, how we work this land together so that we can live well together in this, in this space is called politics. Now, when we hear the word politics, people assume that we mean hot topic issues that swing far to the right or swing far to the left. And a lot of churches say that they have a, that a lot of churches say that they have a no politic policy because they want to avoid controversy. Instead, they'll just speak about religious issues, Jesus issues. But you need to know, 
that we believe that politics is a religious issue. They are religious issues. Religious issues are political issues. This is why suicide bombers carry out acts in the name of God. I want you to know that here at the H Street Church, we do not have a no politics policy. That's that's not that's not us. In fact, each week we make a political statement. You just did it a few minutes ago. We want to be good neighbors to one to one another. We do not have our lives together. We need God and we need one another. This is a political statement. We we do not have a no politic policy because the Christian story is political. King Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God, son of David, we proclaim. And God's plan is through him to set the world right. Isaiah says it this way. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, a Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And throughout the, the consumerismus season, we hear it sung in the malls. King of kings, Lord of lords, and he will reign forever and ever. Let's not let that irony be lost on us. When there is injustice, we are called to speak about it. When our neighbor is in need, we clothe our neighbor and feed and serve and teach. And we're motivated by this because of a politic. Jesus has been the very best neighbor to us. The apostles themselves called this good news. Now, if you have been here for very long, you've heard proclamations about what it means to be the people of God in this space, and we have, we have talked about political issues cased within the Christian story. We have been bold about immigration and school and church shootings, racial violence, homelessness, education, health care, sexual misconduct, power, and greed. We've prayed together and we've raised money after a shooting. We've championed those who have gone out and fostered children. We visit those who are in prison. We have fed the hungry together. We have stood with educators. We've advocated for throwaways. We've begun to recycle at this church. We worship with others that don't look like us. We've communicated to our representatives about the needs of our neighbors and what's best for them, but we've done it with love and respect. We've sent others to counseling to find out healing. We have together sat all night in hospitals. We've rebuilt homes and church buildings in order to give them away as gifts. We felt the responsibility, even on some occasions, to condemn the words of Christians, Christian leaders who don't tell the truth, and we have confessed and asked forgiveness when we have gotten it wrong And we have gotten it wrong many, many, many times. Parish is a word that we love. And it's a word that we want to reclaim because we want to get in on God's plan. We believe our lives are better when we are neighbors. And if we discern the presence of God in this reality, here in this particular spot of land, our behavior becomes, to to some degree, a response to this God in the larger world, in this place that we call Earth. Like me, uh, our brothers and sisters, I think, in this city and in our world, who have more important things on their minds than consumerismus, need need God to show up in a real way. Because, honestly, 
life for some has been difficult, like in the days of Zebulun and Naphtali, Isaiah says. Now, in Isaiah's day, the leaders of the nation didn't care about their parish. In fact, most of the kings that came after Solomon were evil, and they did not carry out justice for the land, and they did not carry out justice for the people. Eventually, they found themselves in this terrible, raging war that lasted for years, and their land was literally and absolutely obliterated by the Assyrians in the 733 B.C. campaign that was led by a deplorable character whose name was Tiglath-Pileser III. Israel was engaged in this political and economical, economic and violent struggle that lasted for a long, long time. Pain and suffering follows war. We've heard it said before, war is hell. But the effects of war can be felt long after the bombs stop dropping. In August of this year, the New York Times ran this interesting story about reunions between elderly children and their parents that were being hosted by the representatives of North and South Korea. Some of these children and their parents had been separated for more than 50 years, and they got to meet one another for the first time in that 50-year period for a three-hour meeting. At one of these reunions, reunions, a 71-year-old man named Mr. Ree met his 88-year-old mother, Mrs. Lee, for the first time since 1953 because of the violence and because of the issues related to the Korean War. And the man in the reunion held a picture for his mother to see, and he said, Mother, this is Father. And he showed Mrs. Lee a photograph of her deceased husband, who had stayed in the North and had been separated from her. Each year, more than 3,000 elderly South Koreans die without fulfilling their dreams of seeing long-lost loved ones from the North. The war and the effects of war last forever. And this happened here in this text. But Isaiah says, even in the midst of that, Nevertheless, hope springs forth. He says there will be no darkness anymore for those in this land of trouble. But the time is coming when he'll make that whole land, that that whole place glorious. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. The, the abuse of, oppressor, of oppressors and, and the cruelty, cruelty of tyrants is gone. It's done away with. It, it, a deliverance, a surpassing and sudden, uh, sudden, sudden deliverance will come just as Gideon's victory came over Midian. And the reason, he says, is for unto us a child has been born. The gift of a son has come to us. He'll take over the running of the world. His, name's, his name will be amazing. Counselor, strong God, eternal Father, Prince of wholeness. His, his ruling authority will grow, and there will be no limits to the wholeness that he brings. Isaiah says, nevertheless. It's like a great secret word that we hold on to. It's like a knot that comes at the end of our rope. Nevertheless, the rule of God will come in just a little baby, and he will be the one that disrupts all the chaos, and he will bring, be the one that brings the justice and the peace, and he will be the one who reigns throughout the land. 
Now, Christians in the early church pointed back to this prophetic word of Isaiah, and they said, the promise of God to bring hope to this land is found in the king of the Jews, a political title. He was of the royal line of David. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And while that is true, I I have some questions. And my question is this. Can a little child, like Finley maybe, one who is powerless, really bring this kind of peace in a world that is this chaotic and this complex? I think the answer might be, yes, you and I have seen children put a halt to the, to the orders of politics as we know them today. Our, our projector went down, and I apologize. I've got some pictures, and you might remember these, so I want you to picture them in your mind's eye. Do you remember the famous picture John F. Kennedy Jr. is president, and he is consumed with trying to navigate the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Bull Connor with his segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever policy. In that picture, there is something amazing when John F. Kennedy Jr., at three years old, is a little boy under his dad's desk in the Oval Office. And when you see this black and white picture, it stops time. And it helps those who see this picture imagine a new reality. Do you remember the picture that you may have seen? You may have been surprised like everybody else when five-year-old Jacob Philadelphia was told that he could ask President Obama one question, and he whispered it to President Obama. In fact, the president couldn't understand what he said, so he said, say that again. And little Jacob Philadelphia said, does your hair feel like mine? And somebody with the camera caught the picture. It's, it's, a captured as, it's a photo captured as President Obama bends over and says, go ahead, touch it, dude. The awe of a child should awaken the awe in all of us. This week, you, may have seen, you might have seen it. A little boy with Down syndrome rushed to give the Duke and Duchess a, a hug, and, and he melted the world's heart when, when then he reached out to scratch Prince, Prince Harry's beard. And then you may remember the one, a 14-year-old boy, after, after he was at a protest in Ferguson, with tears streaming down his face, hugs a police officer. It, it, it took a boy, a boy to reveal the struggle and the resentment and the violence and the racism that resides in every single one of us. Images like this stop time, and they recapture for us the very politics of Jesus, who said, if you want to see what the kingdom of God looks like, you need to look at a little child. Images like this and the pictures that Isaiah draws upon in the gospel, they're sent to those people who find themselves in the midst of despair. Images like this reveal God's active turn of the pages of our own lives. This is why we, here in this little church on 8th Street, we hold up a little baby girl named Finley Joe. It's so that we can imagine together the good future that is ahead for us. It is in sweet little girls like her that the promise of Isaiah may be, just maybe for us. Nevertheless is the greatest word because it brings out hope for us in our parish. And yet, we need to be honest because the world rages against this hope. 
So, I think it just might be the time that we address the elephant in the room after imagining these wonderful pictures and seeing the images of children that interrupt a political system as we know it. I think that pictures like this are sacred and and even reveal the sacred presence of God for us. But there are other pictures that create doubt and questions. What about the images that we've seen over the last 24 hours of migrant workers where parents are pressing their children up to gates and walls of military officials and officers on the border between Guatemala and Mexico. What we see in these pictures is a conflict in parish. It is a people. It's a place. It's about land. And we all know it's political. What do we do with pictures like that in light of our text today? The answer is, I've got no idea. Could I just confess that to you? I, I, I just don't know. It would be incredibly honest, dishonest for me to pretend that I did know, and I, I just don't really trust anyone who says that they have the answer to that complex and chaotic situation or others like it. The suffering of the people there, the twisted nature of border crossings as it relates to place protection and the obscure and deplorable nature of politics leads me with all kinds of questions, lots of questions. I'm not sure how we go about understanding these levels of suffering. This, this, and this is one of the key issues in, in, in relationship to faith. Doubts and questions about suffering in the, in the world in light of a good and holy God. How do we think about this? How do we go about reconciling this? How, how do we reconcile Isaiah's vision with the vision that we see on the news? It's something that is very difficult to do. And I don't have many answers. But I do know this. Questions are welcome at the 8th Street Church. Some think that questions mean and, and doubts mean that they have to give up engaging, that they, they have to give up on faith, that, that we have to step away from faith as it relates to place and, and people and politics. But I actually think the opposite. I actually think that questions like this drive us to reimagine our parish. It drives us to get involved and ask questions about the good of our neighbors. It drives us to ask to be curious and to seek out the good in this land, in this place. It drives us to seek out a new political way. The confession that King Jesus is Lord is to join in with the saints throughout the ages who have been asking questions. Could there be a government like the one that Isaiah speaks of? Could there be a new way forward? Who would dare to envision such a thing? Who has the audacity to conceive of this kind of heavenly kingdom governmental structure that places hurting people first, or the kind of of kingdom that believes that chaos can be reordered in and through crazy acts of mercy and love, forgiveness, acceptance, compassion, generosity, hospitality, and justice. Who, Who would have the boldness to ask the question, and to call on people to be brave on behalf of their neighbors. To ask questions evokes some kind of an 
expectation, some kind of a hope within me. It calls me to live nevertheless. What kind of land would this be if we could ask the question and we had the courage to do so? What kind of land would this be and what kind of people would we be that live in such a place and ask such questions? Is there a government like the one that Isaiah talks about with a ruler like the one he envisions? Maybe. Maybe there is. And maybe the point of Isaiah is, first, that I can imagine it. I can imagine that happening. John Wesley could imagine it. He's our spiritual forefather. He famously said, the world is my parish. And in understanding that, he advocated for justice. He started schools. He became a healthcare professional. He reformed the political system. He disrupted addictive cycles. He mentored William Wilberforce, who was Abraham Lincoln's idol. He was the abolitionist that stopped the slave trade in Europe a hundred years before it happened here in the United States. And I believe that the people of the 8th Street Church can imagine it. It has led, this imagination has led to a deep sense of care that we have collectively for our parish, the local one here and the global one that is beyond. You, the H Street Church, I've seen you. You care about this place, Midtown and Oklahoma City and the wider world. You care about the people here, those that have been oppressed and violated and abused. And you are willing to bring your hard questions, to seek out the answers with expectation and hope. You are willing to look for that which God is doing. And you are willing to imagine that it doesn't have to be this way anymore. And we are going to get involved. And I know the apostles themselves imagined it. And so did the saints. And so have Christian people throughout the world today. In Guam and in the Philippines, and in Ethiopia, and in the Republic of Congo, and in Haiti, and in India. And each group of Christians collectively throughout the world have been reminding themselves of of this vision, Isaiah's vision, as they come together and they tell this story at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save. After after all he had, after all he had given, he took his clothes off in front of his disciples, he wrapped a towel, wrapped a towel around himself, and he washed their feet. This was a shocking act of love and service. This was an act of politics. King Jesus is the servant to those he created. And then he said to them after he did this act of mercy, as I have done this for you, I want you to do this for one another. His invitation was uh, an extension to us to do what he has done. His invitation was an extension to us to get in on what God is doing. His invitation was an invitation to imagine. Imagine a new way and imagine a way to serve. And we can imagine this way when we are reminded that he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said to his people, this is my body which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. 
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he held it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. John Wesley tells us that what happens at this table is salvific, which means that at this table, it's the place the place where we are saved. We are saved here from our ways. We are saved here from our selfishness. We are saved here from our past. We are saved into a new story. John Wesley says that this is the beginning place in joining the work of God. And anybody who is interested in this story and who wants to imagine a new way, anyone who is a part of the 8th Street Church and beyond who says that King Jesus is Lord and care about place and people, and his politic, you are welcome to this table. We want no barriers, so I want to let you know that our bread is gluten-free. Our wine is non-alcoholic. When you come, I want you to move out of the left side of your row, come down the aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Approach one of these servers. Listen to what they have to say. Dip the bread into the cup, eat it, and then be thankful. And for any reason you cannot make it down one of our aisles, just wave your hand to Paul over here and he will come and he will serve you. This is our story. This is your story. And we come grateful. So when you are ready, I invite you to come.